Welcome to lesson number four here in module two, The Gospel and the World. And in lesson uh, number three, we started to look already at uh, the history of world missions from the Bible. We talked about before time began, and we were talking about some of the prophetic promises of a Messiah that would save. We were in the book of Isaiah. And I want to continue a little bit more in the Old Testament, and then we'll, we'll look at some of the things, how, how things develop in the New Testament. And if you look in your syllabus there, it says God's three historical steps in redemption. And I just want you to see it very simply. When God spoke to Abraham, Abraham was, we would say today, an Iraqi man. Today, where Abraham came from in Ur in Chaldea, he was a Chaldean, but today we would say from Iraq. And God spoke to him for the purpose of creating one nation. In fact, many nations came from Abraham because the entire uh, Middle Eastern world, you could say, traces its origin to Abraham. And so God called Abraham in order to, uh, through him, a new nation would come. And of course, in, in Genesis uh, chapter 12, you have a tremendous mission scripture. Again, people quote this left and right and miss the miss missions part, where it says, the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. You know, leave, leave all that. To a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the purpose here was to bless all the families of the earth. Now we know, and I'm not going to go into it right now, it'll come up a little later on, that when God says that he's blessing Abraham's seed, the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And those who are in Christ can also call themselves the seed of Abraham. That is very clear from Galatians chapter 3. But I want you to break it down a little bit further here, where he says, I'll make you a great nation, which would be Israel, and I will bless you. And then from Israel, this seed would come, which is Jesus Christ. But the ultimate purpose was not the nation, it was all the nations and all the families of the earth. Then, secondly, out of that, then Israel was born. And God appointed Israel. It had his special people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We love the people of Israel. They were appointed, and the Savior would come through them. And then finally, this climaxes in the birth of the Messiah. Jesus came. It says in Galatians chapter 4, I think we'll go to that, that verse, Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. I'll find it here in a moment here, 4-4. Four, four. Yes. Even when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born under that religious system to redeem those who were under the law, under that same system that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son in your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, of course, is the name that Jesus used for God. So uh, if you want to call God Abba, that is something very, very scriptural. 
And then with Jesus' coming then, this went worldwide. Uh, the angel said on shepherd's field that there would be joy to the world. It was for all nations. That's what God said to Abraham. Shepherd's field, joy to the world. God so loved the world. Jesus died for the world. He said, my blood is not uh, for you only, but for all the world. And so it, it went worldwide. And, and, and the Jewish sacrifices, as you remember, I taught in module one, seized on the 4th of August, 70 after Christ. After the 4th of August, 70 after Christ, there have been no more blood sacrifices in Israel. And that's the only place you're supposed to do them according to the Old Testament teaching. So no blood, valid blood sacrifices. So when you go to Jerusalem, if you go there, you'll see the Temple Mount. And where the Temple Mount is today, there is a... Uh, a mosque is built, actually two mosques. Uh, there's the Dome of the Rock Mosque and there's Al-Aqsa Mosque. But right there, just very close to where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is, that's where the temple was. And that temple was destroyed. Sacrifices ceased. So even for the Jewish people, there is no blood sacrifice for sin except for Jesus Christ. Okay, a few other things here as we go on now. Uh, I've already mentioned some of the Old Testament concepts. We got into that in the last class. The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. And uh, so you see those points. So I'm going to go right now, fast forward. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of missions. Uh, you could say by the coming of Jesus, God's claim to the nations as his inheritance God's claim to the ends of the earth is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 86, 9 said, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you. Well, that is fulfilled in Jesus for whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Jesus is the king. He, 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 and by coming, he is establishing his reign. And, and we, by the Holy Spirit, are working with Jesus till all his enemies <laughs> have been subdued under his feet because he has defeated them already. But we're going to put everything under his feet. And, and, and really this, what, what Jesus through his death and resurrection accomplishes, he becomes the judge of the world. Look at these very interesting statements. These are rather encouraging statements. Acts chapter 10. And you maybe pick up some things here that you haven't noticed before. Acts 10. Uh, it says... Uh, let's start in verse 20. Him God raised, uh, verse 40, excuse me. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to those who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And we know in the epistle to Simon, of, of Simon Peter that he went, after his resurrection, he went down and preached the gospel to those who had died in the flood of Noah. Isn't that amazing? You, you better look it up. I don't have time to go there right now, but he went down and preached to those 
They'd been dead for thousands of years, and Jesus went there and preached the gospel to them. Wow, that is, that is something. What does that mean? You probably have 10,000 questions. Write them down and discuss them and find out what the scripture says. Look at staying in, in the same book, Romans, excuse me, Acts 17, verse 31, where it says, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. <laughs> Praise God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is assured to us. It wasn't just that Jesus died, but because he rose, we shall live also. This world, this, this life now is not the end. There is new life. There is resurrection. And he has shown that to all. Isn't that beautiful? And then uh, I put in your notes there that God's promise to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. Remember, we read God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations. And now I want to go to Galatians 3. Uh, I said it was coming up shortly, and here it is. Shortly has now come. Where it says, um, concerning this, uh, in, in verse uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He doesn't say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And then you go down to verse 26. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, where it says... And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I mean, that is something. That is one big statement. So I'm asking you, are you Christ's? Are you? You sure now? Does the Spirit bear witness in your spirit that Christ lives in you? And if you are Christ, because of Christ, you are Abraham's seed and an heir according to the promise. So I tell you very openly, people say, oh, the Jewish people is Abraham's seed. The Arabs say, no, we are Abraham's seed. And that's what the Muslims say. Well, let me be really blunt. Abraham's seed is not many, but it's one, Christ. Christ is Abraham's seed. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So well, what does that mean? Hell, I think it's pretty plain what it means. It means what it says. And so God's promise to Abraham to bless every family on the earth is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, so, so we looked at Jesus. Jesus is coming and how Jesus is coming fulfills uh, God's promise and desire for missions. Now, let's look a little further into the book of Acts. You see, when, when Jesus was here walking on the earth, whatever cares, whatever anxieties the disciples had, they could cast their cares on him. He was there to help them. They asked questions, sometimes stupid questions, and Jesus would say, how long do I have to be with you? But nevertheless, he answered their questions. He was there to help them. 
he was there to rebuke them a little bit. So when they had gone out and they had seen miracles and they were so excited that demons came out, he said, easy, 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 boys. Don't be so excited about demons coming out, but be excited that your names are written in heaven. So he was helping them and guiding them and being their friend, setting them off in the right direction continually. And then Jesus said, now when I leave, it's actually good for you, John 16. He said, it's good for you, verse 7, that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the comforter, the Holy Spirit, will not come. He will be another comforter just like me. So Jesus assured them, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. That promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost after Jesus had gone back to heaven. And now we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us and our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. And that's why Jesus was able to say in John uh, 14, verily, verily, I say to you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these shall he do because I go to my father. And so the comfort had come, the promise of the Spirit had come. And I put here, uh, he says the book of the Acts of the Apostle could really be called the book of Acts of Jesus through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. We should never underestimate or we can never overestimate the importance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' last sermon, John 14, 15, 16, 17, it was centered on the Holy Spirit and on his last commandment that we would love one another. In the book of Acts, when 3,000 were saved, it was by the work of the Holy Spirit. When 5,000 believed, the number of them, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. When, when they gave an offering so great, uh, so generous, it was the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that was conducive to such generosity and giving of their finances and real estate and their possessions. Uh, when the first Stephen was martyred, uh, the Holy Spirit was involved there. You can see the Holy Spirit involved in every, every detail of uh, the book of Acts. And what's the purpose? It's missions. I say it again, most if not all of the events in the book of Acts are missions events. These are missions stories. They're not just any stories. They're mission stories. If Paul had not left Antioch, if Paul had not gone out from Antioch, he would not have had those stories to tell. If Simon Peter hadn't been doing the things he were doing, traveling around from every town, it says, from town to town, everywhere, he wouldn't have his stories to tell. So the miracle stories, the, the greatest accounts of God's wisdom and God doing things on behalf of the people, it happened in the context of missions. And I say to you, as long as you are sitting at home, just dreaming and thinking and planning and waiting, and I don't know what you're waiting for, go out, talk to somebody, reach someone, talk to a stranger, talk to someone who looks different than you. That's where you'll see the miracles. Sitting at home there at your kitchen table and just thinking, oh, I wish something great could happen in my life. You're not going to see much. Miracles happen when people go. Go for the gospel. Um, so we're going to look at some of these. You know, even speaking in tongues. 
which is contentious or something. But when you read in the book of Acts chapter 2, well, it, they, 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 others heard them speak. Again, the purpose was get the message out. Uh, Jesus thought this was so important that he forbade the disciples, do not leave till you've got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to look at five instances here, and it's going to take a little bit, as how the Holy Spirit is involved in missionary work in the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. There you have the story, excuse me, Acts chapter 2. We already read Acts chapter 1 in the previous class. So I'm going to go to Acts chapter 2 here now, verse 1. And look at this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What is the first thing I notice here that I want to point out that is missions related? That number one, put this down in your notes. I didn't write it all down for you. The reason I don't write everything down because I want you to work a little bit yourself. You take some notes. So you hear me say, he, he, he's talking for a long time here. He just had a scripture reference. Well, what else should we have here? Well, write it down. Write it down, uh, what I'm saying. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is to take over communication. That means the Holy Spirit is interested in communication. So the sound changed. Audio there was new audio, and the audio filled the house. So the most basic means of communication is sound that comes into our ears. And I would say today we live in a world where we don't only have sound, we have visuals. We are a very visual world with television and clips and digital and uh, the Holy Spirit wants to be noticed. The Holy Spirit, to be more specific, wants the work of Jesus Christ to be noticed. So whatever means of communication, sometimes it's a printed material, sometimes it's radio, sometimes it's television, or it's social media. I don't think we've even begun to tap into what can happen through social media, touching people, sharing the gospel. I see people share all kinds of things on social media. Share the gospel. Put together a little one-minute clip where you tell your story, what Jesus has done for you. Send it out. I don't see much of that. Tell your story. I was this. I was that. This was my background. I didn't know Jesus Christ. Here's what happened. Try to condense it. Don't, don't ramble on and on and on and on and on. Put it in one minute, maximum two. Send it out. Start doing things. Let people notice you're there. The Holy Spirit is interested in communication. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I hope inspiring ideas are coming to you even as I speak. Then, in, in the first uh, non-Jewish city, that is impacted in the book of Acts is Samaria. We know the story there. Philip preached Christ. Multitudes believed. Unclean spirits came out. 
And uh, those who were possessed with demons were set free, paralyzed were healed, and there was great joy in the city. So that, that's powerful. I've taught on that many times. But now when it says a little later on in verse 14 or verse 15, or start with verse 14, Acts 8, when the, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they, they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And through that, the witch doctor there was exposed and other things happened. But you see how important it was now that they in Samaria would receive the same baptism of the Holy Spirit because that they were supposed to carry it to others. So the Holy Spirit is front and center. Then we're going to go now to the biggest story that we have in the book of Acts. This is the biggest. It's, it's huge. So, so just open up your Bible. And I'm going to recap it. This story is told over 66 verses. It starts in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. And Acts chapter 10 is 48 verses. And then he goes on to chapter 11, verse 18. So a total of 66 verses. It must be an important story if it's 66 verses. That's more verses than the story of the day of Pentecost. And we could all agree that the day of Pentecost, oh, that was one monumental event when the Holy Spirit came. But if amount of space allotted in the Holy Scripture for a story is any indication of the importance of the story, then this one, 66 verses, that's rare. That's rare. So let me not read all 66 verses, but let me just tell the story. And you can follow along from time to time. I will read a verse. I'll, I'll read the first verse. There was a certain man in Caesarea. Caesarea is a city by the ocean, by the Mediterranean. By car today, it's about an hour and 15 minutes from Tel Aviv, up the coast. In those days, from the city of Jaffa, which is just adjacent to Tel Aviv today, it was probably about a day and a half journey. And there was a man there called Cornelius, a centurion, of what was called the Italian regiment. So he was an Italian man. He was not a Jewish man. He was a Gentile man in the biblical vernacular. And uh, he was praying and he feared God. He was a giver and he saw a vision and an angel came and said to him, I'm now in verse four, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is this? So the angel said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. And then he said, now Cornelius said the angel, I want you to send people down to Jaffa and go to a place there called Simon the Tanner's house. And somebody there is praying, Simon Peter, and get him and he will tell you the way of salvation. So that's, that's something powerful. I haven't even put that among the, among the, the points here. 
uh, that I'm going to give, but, but I'll get to that. So we can just say right there that here, here's a powerful point and put down some of the principles as, as, as I say them. You have space in your manual there. That the angel does not share the gospel. You could say, well, angel, you're here. Why wait for Simon Peter? He's a day and a half journey away. And who knows if he's willing to come anyhow. So why don't you tell me the gospel? See, God never planned for the gospel to be preached to angels. Thank God for angels. They are ministering spirits. But some people, they say, oh, I release angels. Go preach there. Angels go and preach here and there. Well, nice for you. You're lazy. Go yourself. Because here you have a clear account where the Bible says it's not through angels. This angel could have done it, I suppose. It's to be done by people. So then the next day, so we suppose these, these men are now on the way. They're coming from, from Caesarea down to Jaffa, a day and a half journey. Now the next day, they were on their journey. Simon Peter was on the rooftop praying. So he's a very um, spiritual guy and he's praying there. And he fell in a trance and he saw a vision. It's a very interesting story. And it was a sheet with unclean animals lowered down. And that sheet, he was looking in his, in his, in his trance. He could probably see a crocodile, a snake, a pig, other unclean animals from the Jewish religion's perspective. They were unclean. And then he heard a voice. And the voice says, arise, kill, and eat. And Simon Peter, in this trance, he recognizes the voice. He said, that is Jesus Christ, my Lord, speaking to me. So somehow there was been a familiarity or something rang true in Simon's spirit. He said, that's Jesus speaking to me. That's Jesus. And what did Simon do? He says, verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And then it says, this happened three times. And the object was taken into heaven. So the sheet came down. You see these animals, frogs, pigs, whatever they were, they're being lowered down. Arise, kill and eat. No, Lord. And the Lord says, what I have cleansed, don't call common. Then it kind of goes up and then it comes down the second time. Then it goes back up a little bit. Then it comes down the third time. So three times this happens. Amazing, isn't it? And this is verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself, whew, he's, he's confused now. He, it says wondered, that means he was perplexed. He's saying, what, what could this mean? What does this vision mean? So while he's still kind of, I don't get it. it. Does God want me to kill pigs and frogs? Well, there's no indication that that's what God wanted. It's no indication that Simon Peter changed his breakfast menu that morning. So while he's pondering, what could this mean? Maybe God is trying to tell me something. Maybe the great... Apostle 
the leader of the church, has become so entrenched in legalism and tradition that he can't even see the gospel himself. Could that happen? Could someone even in your church, in our church, a Christian become so entrenched in religious tradition that we don't even know who Jesus is anymore and what he has done? We don't see it. We're condemning people. We're putting people down. That's what Simon Peter was doing. And uh, so these two messengers have now come. And they called and asked, does Simon, is he lodging here? And while Peter was still thinking about this vision, the Spirit, oh, there it is, the Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. And go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent you. So now stop doubting. I, I'm arranging something. God is saying, I'm working on something here. You don't even know what's going on. Go with them. And then it says, Peter went. And they came there. And, and, and then he, to make a long story short, he ends up in Cornelius' house. And Cornelius was waiting and when he gets into Cornelius's house, you'll, you see how bound by tradition Simon Peter is. The first thing he says in verse 28 to Cornelius and the household there, he says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to those of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. In other words, he's saying, I, you know that I don't eat pork. I don't eat bacon and eggs. I'm a good Jewish man. I just don't break my religious traditions and the rules. I follow them. It's just maybe like some of us have certain traditions raised in certain ways, what you should eat and not eat, what you should drink and not drink. And we, we kind of say, well, I'm not going to break that. But then he says, God has shown me something. And then he that, that call no man unclean. And then he preaches this beautiful message. And at the end of the message, he talks about how Jesus is a healer. He talks about how God sent Jesus, how Jesus is Lord of everyone and how this ministry began. And then finally in verse 43, so he's preaching. He says to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believe in him, will receive remission of sins. Once he finally got to the crux of the matter, the sins are canceled. Remit means cancel. Your sins are canceled. Your sins are gone. And when he got to that, while he was still on that part of his message, the Holy Spirit fell. <laughs> that ought to tell us something. That's the message that the Holy Spirit blesses. When you tell the world, you tell people your sins are remitted, your sins are forgiven, forgiven, your sins are canceled. That's what Jesus said to the lame man who came down through the roof. He said, your sins are forgiven before he healed him or did anything. He told him, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, there was a beautiful thing there. And all the people in the house of Cornelius, they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on all of them, verse 44. And they, they were those who were there who were from the Jewish background, they were astonished that the Holy Spirit had fallen on Italians, Gentiles. And so it, it was beautiful. But I got to move it now. So then verse 11, or chapter 11. Now the apostles who were in Judea, they were not there in, in, in Caesarea. 
they heard something has happened. And they say, well, well, what is this? And they call Simon Peter in. And they say to him, what is this? You have eaten with non-Jewish people? You, you've had lake, bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich? Did you have bacon and eggs? Did you have roast pork? Did you have a shrimp cocktail? Oh, they were, you know, people always concerned. So the apostles here and the leaders in Judea were no different. And so Peter goes and he says to them, he tells them the whole story. I had this vision and uh, Jesus told me that I should not call anybody unclean. I protested. I said, Lord, that's not the way I am. And, and, and he says again, he says, God told me what he has cleansed, you must not call common. So that phrase appears three times. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Three times is mentioned in these 66 verses. So th this is an amazing story. So I, I put there, what, what are some principles for this? For you who are my students, I, I list six principles. The number one is this, the harvest is great, laborers are, are reluctant. I said reluctant. Simon Peter was reluctant. He needed a vision to get going. He needed to see the same vision three times. And so here you have again this principle, Cornelius is waiting. He's hungry, waiting to receive. But the great apostle is reluctant to go. Oh, friends, go with the gospel. Go to individuals, go to nations. The second thing we learn here, people who have known Christ, like Simon Peter, can still become legalistic and condemning. It could happen today. The third principle, God is eager for us to see people as he sees them. He's eager for Simon Peter don't see them as non-Jewish. Don't see them as unclean. See them as I see them. Are there some people in your community that you see unclean? You think they're unclean. Oh, they're far from God. Don't see them like that. When we see people like Jesus sees them, we see that what God has cleansed, I will not call unclean or common. And who has God cleansed? At the cross, he put away the sins of the world, not just one religious group, but the whole wide world. The, the fourth principle I draw to this is this thing that is repeated uh, three times, what God has cleansed, don't call unclean. Stop it, don't call people unclean. And, and then number five, as Simon Peter needed a spiritual shock, so do we. I, I, I'm talking now to our country. And whatever part of the world you're watching this, I'm pretty sure things are pretty similar where you are. We need a spiritual shock. This, this idea has crept into evangelical Christian of us versus them. They are unclean. The world out there is unclean. But we, we here in the church, we and them, stop looking down on other people. When I meet my Buddhist friends, Hindu friends, Muslim friends, secular friends, atheist friends, yes, many years ago, I used to probably think, because that's all I'd ever heard, oh, that, that, that there was something kind of, you know, unclean about them. They were wrong spiritually, uh, spiritually unclean. 
I don't see them as that anymore. I see every person this way. Here's a person whose sins and shame and guilt has been put away. They just don't know it. Their eyes haven't opened. Their mind is still darkened. They need to be enlightened. And so let me have an opportunity to enlighten them about what God in Christ has done for them. So I see people differently. And then here, the Holy Spirit, the sixth principle here, the Holy Spirit confirms that the world's sins are remitted. I, I found that so interesting there that just when, when Peter got to that part, the sins are canceled, the sins are gone. You know, there's so many preachers who are so good at finger wagging, they're just saying, I tell you people, they are like going at it like this. They say, well, you gotta tell the people their sins. Do you think people will really change because you tell them everything that's wrong with them? I remind you that Jesus never told Zacchaeus what was wrong with him. He just visited in his house. And that led to that Zacchaeus told Jesus some of the things that he had done wrong. But Jesus never pointed it out. We're not called to condemn the world or to wag our finger in people's faces. We are messengers of life to bring salvation. What, how beautiful we learn from this story. Now you say, well, that's a not a big, big deal to me because, you know, I'm not worried about shrimp and pork. I understand that. I understand that was the old covenant and I don't, I don't follow those rules, but maybe you have your own religious bigotry. So what if, what if a sheet was lowered down over your bed or my bed? I, well, what would be in that sheet? Maybe there would be a, a burqa. If you're a woman, a burqa. And the Lord would say, dress in this burqa, this Muslim clothing, and go to church this morning. Or, or go on the street. You say, no, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm, I'm, I'm an evangelical. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Pentecostal. Well, it's not that Jesus wants you to you know, change your dress any more than Jesus wanted Paul to change his, Peter to change his breakfast menu here. It's not about those outward things, it's about people. I don't know what shock method Jesus would use to jolt us today into, into stop looking down on people. What if there was a sheet of whiskey bottles that were lower down and, and the Lord would say, arise and drink, and you say, no, I can't do that. I'm not telling you to drink whiskey. I'm not telling you to get drunk. I'm not telling you that. So don't go quoting me and saying, I told you that. I'm saying, would that be the shock treatment we would need to stop looking down on people? When we see someone a little bit inebriated, oh, oh, they're drunk, you know. No, that's a person whose sins Jesus have put away. Don't call anybody common or unclean. So Jesus uses pretty strong shock treatment here. And maybe we need some of that shock treatment as well. Let me, let me give you a little bit more now. And I notice it was the spirit that told Simon Peter to go. He said, the spirit bade me to go. And so the spirit is bidding us get going. Now in Ephesus, I have that reference there from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. You have that in your notes, students. Acts 19, 1 to 6. Again, in Ephesus, 
they had heard the word, they had been baptized in water, but they had not heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm telling you the baptism of the Holy Spirit is important because when you're immersed into the Spirit from your innermost being comes rivers of living waters that will propel you to keep going with the gospel. I want to also go to Acts 13, um, verse 1 there. Let's read that. I referenced it briefly, but I want you to see it in the Scripture yourself. Acts 13. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there was a certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is the only time, by the way, that after the day of Pentecost, fasting is mentioned. Well, there's one other time when, when Paul writes and he says, don't fast too much so that you neglect having relationship with your spouse. Uh, but, but this is the time. So fasting has its place, but I won't go into that right now. But just, it, it's not like they were fasting every other page here. They fasted on this one occasion and they prayed. And what happened here is the, the Holy Spirit said to the group, to the church, you separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So God had called them but the church is to be involved and take responsibility and you set them apart. And then it says, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they sailed. So there was this beautiful combination here. The whole church was involved, taking responsibility. Saul and Barnabas went and the Holy Spirit was the one compelling the whole thing. And, and that, that's how missions work is to be carried on. I want to point out some other things we're getting towards the end of this lesson now. And uh, you can uh, stay with me there. I, I want to have a little subline here called the leading of the Holy Spirit in missions. And I, I think we can learn from this. I'm just going to do kind of the big macro picture now. In other words, we are, we're not going into the details. It's like we're going up in a drone and we're looking down and we see the wide strategy how the Holy Spirit leads people. So there are three principles I want you to notice here that are consistent through the book of Acts. One is that they went to key cities. They went to certain cities. Philip went to Samaria. Peter went to Caesarea. Paul went to key cities. So for example, when Paul went to Ephesus, Ephesus was a major center. Maybe you have had the opportunity to travel in that part of the world where Ephesus is, is today the nation of Turkey. And uh, uh, I, I've been there and uh, it, it was a huge city. Just their library in Ephesus was enormous. And uh, it was a big commercial center, a lot of shops, a lot of traders, 
a lot of industry going on in Ephesus. So it was a big city. So there's a reason why Paul picked Ephesus. He picked a center where he could have maximum impact on, on a large area. So there are other places there nearby, about two hours away um, by, by car today. So it would have been a couple of days journey away in those days. Uh, there was the little town of Colossa, for example. And, 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 and that was an important town. But as far as we know, Paul never went to Colossae. But what is likely is that when Paul went to Ephesus, where he stayed for two years, he ran a training school there called the School of, in the School of Tyrannus. He was teaching daily concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So most likely a man called Epaphras. Epaphras, we believe, was the pastor in the little church in Colossae. And he's mentioned in some of the epistles. You may remember that word is in the Bible, Epaphras. He might have, for some reason, come into Ephesus and attended when Paul was teaching in this school daily, and he received the gospel, and then he went and evangelized in Colossae. Later on, a situation arose that warranted that Paul wrote a special letter to Colossae. And we believe it was Epaphras who contacted Paul when he was in prison in Rome and told him that there were certain strange tendencies, certain emphasis on demons, among other things, that had erroneously crept into the church in Colossae. And then Paul writes his epistle about how Jesus is before all things. And I love the little uh, letter to the Colossians. But Paul had never himself been there. And he even says that in the letter. They says, I've never seen you. I've never been there. But, but they were close to Ephesus. So Paul is targeting major cities. I'm speaking to you as a student. Go to key places. It doesn't have to be a big place, but go to a key place. Go, don't just go where everybody else <coughs> had gone. I'd rather go to a small town where nobody has really had any great proclamation of the gospel than to go to a big city where they have Christian preachers doing their thing every week of the year. And, and, and you look everywhere, there's posters and there's proclamations and gospel tracts. I don't want to go there. On rare occasions, I have been coerced to go there, and God has blessed some of it. But generally, I try to go where others don't go. I try to go where the name of Christ is not known. You will see this when we get into module three, where I will be really talking about strategies and apostolic leadership. You will see this thought come back. But, but I'm not going into those nitty-gritty of apostolic leadership yet. That will come in module three, and it'll be very important. It'll be very key. But I just want you to see here, like, from a drone perspective, that, okay, they hit the main centers, and from those main centers, like circles on the water, the gospel spreads out. Then a second thing here is the capture of key persons and groups of people. For example, when Paul went to the Isle of Cyprus, he dealt with the deputy of that country, won him for the Lord, and thereby created a favorable influence in the land. So look for people that can be helpful again. The reason that I actively seek meetings with Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu leaders, and I want you to do this, and political leaders, it's not because I think they are better or smarter or more valuable to God. 
it's because they can help me to reach further. That's the whole reason. They can open the door. We, we get government permits. We, get, we do all those things to open the door for the gospel. And you can see how Paul is following this method. And then I give you another example. At Athens, for example, Paul engaged the philosophical elite of the city in disputation and roused their interest in the gospel, which resulted in several of the intellectuals of Athens coming to faith in Christ. One of them was a man called Dionysus. You can read about this in, in Acts 17. Again, I'm spending all this in the book of Acts because it's our manual. Certain Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers encountered Paul, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he is a proclaimer on foreign gods because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And he, he goes there to Mars Hill, Areopagus, and he says, uh, and then he begins to speak with them. And then the chapter ends that some of those intellectuals, they joined Paul and believed, among them Dionysius, uh, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, so he got some of those people, not that those people whose name are mentioned are more worth to God, but they were a key to open up the area to the gospel. Philip, he was led by the Spirit to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch, which was, who was like a minister of finance in Ethiopia. And according to the belief in Ethiopia still today, it was that Ethiopian eunuch that carried the gospel back to Ethiopia. And, and, and there was a key person that Philip met. But again, we try to reach everyone, everyone, everyone. And then we notice something else is that Paul kept moving to new areas. In other words, once he had spent maybe a year, year and a half, two years in Ephesus, some places like Thessalonica, he was four weeks only, and then he moved on. So he took a new territory, and then he moved on. Now, one of the sad things in the history of Christian missions is that missionaries generally just went to, to one area, and then they stayed there. And you know, you remember when I was teaching, I think it was in the second class, I was going, we just have this more uh, artistic map here or a little bit different map than we had before. But as I pointed, and I'm just going to move over here if the camera can follow me, that missions went here. Here you have India. And along the coast, missions stations were established. Along the coast of Africa, same thing. And here in, in China, along the coast, along the coast, here's where missionaries came. And that's why you had the China Inland Mission, the Africa Inland Mission, because we got to reach out to more areas. And so this, this is why I advocate Paul's method that, you know, establish something, but then keep thinking beyond that. Keep going beyond. And some of those early missionaries, I'm not criticizing them, but maybe there was such a major undertaking just to get to where they went and they landed somewhere and they say, well, I don't want to travel anymore. Okay, we're not judging them, but we're saying, uh, keep it going forward. We have a, we have a lot of land to cover. The, the trumpets, trumpet sound, it says in, in, this, in, in Leviticus, when the trumpet of Jubilee was to be blown and sounded, it must be heard in all the land. And so it is today, it's not just one land, it's all the world. I, I wanna end this class by giving an example of this. We're going to go to Mark chapter 1. 
And I believe this could speak to your life by the Holy Spirit. Mark 1, verse 36. Well, let's say verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, that is for Jesus. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. So here what happens is Jesus has had a very successful ministry in the town of Capernaum. The whole town has welcomed him. Simon Peter's mother-in-law has been healed. Many others have been healed. It's, it's a very, very comfortable situation. Jesus is extremely popular. So in the morning when the disciples wake up, Jesus is gone. Now he's away praying somewhere and he's kind of gone out of town, it seems. And, and they find him and say, hey, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Jesus, you, 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 you're the big name in town here. Everybody's looking for you, Jesus. You, you're the man. Get back to Capernaum. People want to treat you good and maybe give an offering. I don't know what they want to do for you. And Jesus said these classic words in verse 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I might preach there also because for this purpose have I come forth. The purpose of Jesus is not that the gospel would just be stationary in one place, but that we would go to the whole world. If you look back in lesson two, see that pie chart. There are still billions who haven't heard that are still waiting. And today we have radio, television, printing presses, social media, and they're still waiting. And those things are important. But the one thing that they had, these who turned the world upside down, they had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that relationship kept them going. The love of Christ compelled them. Keep going. Don't stop. We must go till everyone has heard every possible place where we can find an entrance. Let's go there. And that's something for us to consider. That's something for us to think about. There's still billions waiting maybe millions in the country that you're watching this, and certainly in countries beyond where you are, many millions more. And Jesus said, when you go, the Holy Spirit is there to empower you.